Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas can and will change the world. I have been um, a strategist, a process consultant. I have worked with many systems and silos of excellence that represent the domains of most organizations. And I've been through a number of technology uh, events and products that have revolutionized the way we work from the main th mainframe all the way through cloud services today. And of course, what we're now facing is a new tool, just a new tool, right? Just a new tool called artificial intelligence. And so I get to, I get the blessing in my life to actually experience this next generation of computing, which is really fascinating. Today, I have a gentleman, I was able to hear him give a keynote at a conference recently, and he had a very unique perspective on how this tool may have the opportunity to transform how we think about ourselves and the world we live in. I'd like to introduce to you Brian Evergreen, who's the founder of the Profitable Good Company, which I could spend three hours talking to him about that name. Uh, at, it's a leadership advisory company, and uh, but it it is it was founded on his experience working at some of the biggest names in technology and technology services, Accenture, Amazon Web, and Microsoft. He's a voracious learner like myself. Welcome, Brian Evergreen. Thank you, Ron. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm very happy. And again, his book is called, everybody, Autonomous Transformation, Creating a More Human Future in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. So uh, as everyone knows, these are not scripted conversations, Brian. So I'm going to throw you a little curveball. Bring it on. And you probably hit curveball, so I'm not too concerned. <laughs> Let's start with root. I want to start with a root term. How would you describe humans of yesterday, humans of today, and what we might be defining as human in the future? So actually, I don't see that as too much of a curveball in the sense that I think it's the answer is, is effectively the same. I think that what's changed is the context. So I think the humans, the fundamental drive that we have as humans to do things that are meaningful to us, to create meaning in community and to enjoy uh, the things that are around us. Um, but, but not simply just enjoy it. Like I said, starting with making meaning, I think is the most, one of the most fundamental drivers that we have as humans. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's been interesting because the context has shifted. If you think about the way that we made meaning collectively as a global, you know, just across all civilizations, 200 years ago, even, um, so many conversations were being had around and stories around mythologies and around various gods and about you know other cultures and and whether or not you know what so much so much imagination when you think about it and um now that we've had such a 
drive for separation between church and state, science and reason, you know, science and faith. Um, we're now in a state where I think that that drive is still there, but because of the shift in context, now we're replacing the the make believe and the imagination we have and the search for meaning away from mythologies and away from faith. We're replacing it with prophecies about technology and about what this means for the future of humanity and society. And so I think that's the fundamental change that we're seeing. Um, you know, and so I think it's less about how humans are different and more about how the contexts are and how the same basic humanity that we have is is the th carries the thread through these different contexts and manifests differently. And so I think that fundamentally that the definition of what it means to be human is, I, I believe it, it is venerable. I think that it, it is something that um, will stay the same throughout as we continue forward. I think how we interpret our humanity, um, there's, there's questions being raised just like they were raised a hundred years ago. Right. And, and they've been raised as with each new, in, in my book, I wrote about how, um, when we learned that an ape can lift, I think, what is it? 10 times or eight times, they have eight times the upper body strength that a human has that doesn't threaten our, um, idea of what it means to be human or, um, uh, when we find out that whales have greater empathy centers in their brains than we do, it doesn't threaten anything for us. And, but for some reason, when it comes to technology, we, we find it very alarming when they, um, have any kind of capability that we've previously considered human, you know, off limits to tech and only, only humans. Um, and so I think that what it means, how we define humanity and, and, for me, it's it's a story that carries all the way through and will continue to carry forward the same set of humans with the same fundamental uh, drivers and needs and desires for meaning and belonging and connection with other people. Um, but I think that the that technology is challenging that, especially if anything, social media and now questions around AI. And um, but I think that our humanity will will flourish, um, just like you know you can build. In any any society, you can you know you, if you build buildings and you tear down all the nature, um, but then you 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 stop curating it. It's only a matter of time before the the wildlife and nature thrives again in that area. And I think I think our humanity will be similar. Well, so I'm going to tie something back, and then I'm quickly going to start applying it to where we spend most of our lives. Business, I think that's important. But uh, I want to touch on something, and maybe I'm. I'm stretching too far. You you pull me back if you think I'm stretching too far. But um, I used to have a logic ladder in the early days around technology. And I think it still applies today. And that is we, we have invented sensors. They aggregate data. And then because the data isn't easily conveyed or understood, we develop apps to grab that sensor data. Now we put it into context. And you can think about our favorite apps, right? The Microsoft Office are basically aggregating data and putting it into applied practices, right? So now we have the application layer. And of course, now what we want to do is really assess what we just did with that document. We have an analytics layer. So now we start diagnosing what really went on in that creative effort of the Microsoft Word document. 
And then we and we apply other tools on top of it. Zoom and its new AI tool will tell you what kind of maybe how your message is being received as you talk on Zoom, right? How interesting. So the analytics layer. And then um, and now in this new era, I go, huh, if I really can get a handle on on those different logic layers, I can teach the machine to get even better at the system's view of what I'm doing, which is collecting data, sensory sensors, you know, app, applying the data and understanding the data. So now it can get better at optimizing that if I teach the machine the right things. And then what I'd really like to do in the future is have that machine think for itself. So to take how I learn and maybe take it to the next level and start giving me things like predictive analytics, which you go into in your book. I love your, your little chapter on that. So, uh, so I'm going up that logic ladder. Now, now hold that for a second because then the human body, we're starting to put sensors inside the body. Musk is talking about implanting inside of the brain. So are we giving, rather than calling it artificial, are we creating a new expression of human? Where does this ultimately go, Brian? I think that we are... Um... I love I love hearing your logical layer uh, analysis of it, and I I've thought about it a little bit differently, but I want to I want to sit with yours a little bit more before you know not not before responding now, but I'm I'm definitely going to take it with me and and mull over it. Um, in terms of responding now, I'll say that the way that I think about, I guess intelligence, um, since that is one of the core words of what we talk about now with with all of this or smart devices and things like that, and I think that. For me, I, I love to think about it through the lens of how we as humans, if we, how we would treat a new substance that we found in the ocean. And if we discovered a new substance, what would be our first step? We would create language around that thing. We would name it something, right? And then the next step would be to start to experiment with it and try to gain some form of knowledge of, okay, this thing explodes if you heat it up to this temperature or, or can it set on be set on fire how does it conduct electricity does it you know what does that it what's its melting point right all these different kinds of experiments that we could do we'd be gaining knowledge so we'd be growing from language to knowledge and then um from knowledge we would seek to uh, find a sense of understanding around what it actually is useful for and then once we've gained understanding, then we can find ways to operationalize this new substance, assuming there's more and we can, you know, get enough to do something with it. <clears throat> once we've operationalized it and we're doing something repetitively with it, now is when we're really generating a larger body of data. And I think a lot of times in this, back to, you know, think about your logical ladder, a lot of people like to start at the bottom and say, well, what data do we have and how can we make that useful? And the thing I'm always most interested in is what expertise do we have that we haven't figured out a way to translate to machine language. And so it's not that we're trying to make the machines smarter. It's that we're trying to take expertise that we gain through exploration 
you going from language to knowledge to understanding to you know expertise from operationalization operationalizing something and then transferring that workload off to a, a machine so that we as humans can do what we do best and go explore the next thing and so um that's how i think i don't i don't think of it like trying to generalize machines to be able to handle any task in any direction because that assumes it can only handle tasks that um you know, it can only handle that you're, you're aiming at the middle at that point. But if we can instead say, what are the most, you know, burdensome tasks for humans? And if we look at those and where do we have the most expertise and what are, what are those areas and opportunities where we could try to, as we continue to making our tools better and better, try to translate some of that expertise into machine language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, but again, are we, are we creating a new intelligence, a new species, if you will? Are we going through an atom moment in creation? I, I don't think so, um, for a few reasons. I, I don't think that, so, you know, it's it's funny because the pursuit from the beginning of the discipline has been artificial intelligence. And I'm, you know, doing air quotes since, you, the, you know, this is a podcast, you can't see me. So I'm doing bunny, bunny quotes in the air, artificial intelligence. Um, I don't believe that we are <clears throat> creating an intelligence because I think that requires an underlying um, cognition, a sense of self. And we don't even understand human cognition or what makes us sentient. So it would be very, very arrogant of us to assume that we're going to somehow accidentally stimulate consciousness when we don't even understand it ourselves. Um, if anything, it's artificial in the sense that it looks like and seems like and sounds like consciousness at times. Um, but fundamentally, it's just math being applied really, really fast in more and more creative ways. Of course, you could say that about the human brain, too. <laughs> yeah. Yes and no. Um, I think that, you know, the, our ability as humans to it, it starts with a fundamental understanding of a sense. Like if, if you think about any human and what drives us and how we how we think about things. It starts with awareness of ourself and our environment, um, setting our own goals for what, what we want to be different about our life or, or something that we want, and then in, endeavoring to achieve those goals through one, you know, a, a, not just a, a task, but entire set of tasks and strategy and starts with a vision for, okay, if I want to have that kind of job, that breaks out into many, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of tasks between me and there. And I'm generalizing across them. And um, at different points, I'm I'm saying yes to opportunities that involve, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of little mini tasks along the way <clears throat> and, and performing all of those and and the synthesis we can do across disciplines. Um, I have, I have, I, we would need a whole new breakthrough in computer science um, and a new paradigm to ever even begin to approach that with systems as opposed to with people. For those business leaders who are on the on the other end of the podcast today, Brian spends half his book talking about how we have built companies since the dawn of the industrial age. It's fascinating because he's getting us to remember uh, how we do things and the why of why we do things. And he goes into great detail on this mechanistic thinking that has 
provided incremental results in our human endeavors. Uh, when you first started thinking about this book, why'd you decide to start with that approach? I think that I had spent so much time working with leaders at incredibly large companies with lots and lots of resources and at the highest levels. And, um, and from the Microsoft perspective or from AWS or Accenture, um, having, you know, the, some of the best talent in the world and seeing time and time again, leaders getting in their own way because of focusing very, very narrowly, similar to in a chess game, focusing on one piece, just, just one and saying, I have to figure out what I'm going to do with this pawn, uh, or with this Bishop and forgetting about the fact that it's, there's, you know, 32 pieces on a, on the onset of a chess game. And so if you're just, if you're only allowing yourself to move one piece, you will inevitably lose that game, you know, even against a beginner. And so, um, I think that that's, that's something that I, from seeing that time and again, I realized, okay, if we're actually going to harness the economic and societal potential of AI, you know, AI, uh, augmented reality, all these various technologies that are just absolutely phenomenal in what you, the, the, the paintbrush that they create for leaders today, um, we have to start with thinking systemically as opposed to thinking, you know, what's my next use case or how am I going to, you know, get 2% more efficiency on the exact same way I've been doing this for decades by using this new tool, as opposed to reimagining um, how value creation in the market and, and starting from, you know, starting from that future that we want to create first and working backwards to what, what tools might make sense instead of starting with, well, Let's pick up the AI tool, look around our business and figure out where we can apply it. I, I often liken that to um, getting a new saw and picking it up and walking around your house saying, how am I going to make my home better with this new tool that I have? Instead of saying, well, I want, you know, bigger counter space. If I, if I, if the, the average person said, I need, I need more counter space, um, they don't need to start, go just go out and buy a tool and just start working even. Even then you need experts and you need to create a design and you need to make sure that it's up to whatever standards and codes, you need to budget for it. And then the very end of the process, after you've done all that work, then people come and they bring the tools. Um, and But for some reason, we've lost that logic when it comes to enterprise projects. We pick up the tool and we try to go as fast as we can. Please. And I, I found that wonderful because I'm sitting there going, of course, I very rarely talk about my practice, but I like to um, say that my strategic consulting is about doing the right research around the market ecosystems. If someone hired me to come in and say, fix my company, uh, my counterintuitive response is, let me go look at your market first. And then let me look at where the new money's going because I want to know what's going to disrupt that market in the future. And then I'll come look at your company and see how ready you are to respond to the future, including your systems thinking and whether they're uh, silos of excellence or they're actually interlocking in a way that gets to the whole result. So you and I are very similar that way. But as you know, You've worked some, for some amazing companies, but even in those companies, you run into silos of excellence, right? How 
what kind of advice can you give to people that will help them deal with those silos in a productive manner? The, the first thing I, I would say is um, to imagine that you're starting a rock band in terms of working with other people, which I think is what you're hinting at of like working across silos of excellence and getting experts from different disciplines to work together. I, I think of, I like to compare it to a rock band, um, which is, you know, if you were starting a new rock band, um, the first thing you'd do is you'd get these various instrumentalists and, you know, your, your guitarist and your keyboardist and whatever else, you'd get them together and knowing, of course, they have a completely different fundamental background and, and sound that they bring to the table. And so when you bring them together, um, you, they're going to jam and you're going to figure out what's that unique sound that's the fusion of all of their different backgrounds and their specifics. So somebody might have a Latin music background and that's gonna contribute in, in one way and someone might be more classically trained, that might contribute in another way. Someone might, you know, be more of a ballad, you know, or right, it could be anything. And so, but then that, that fusion is what makes that band so unique. And I think a lot of times the way that we approach enterprise projects is to me like grabbing a bunch of, if you think about it in the rock band context, grabbing a bunch of people that have each been, even if you took Bono and you took like some of the most amazing musicians and you threw them together into a group and pushed them onto stage at a sold out concert, it would not go well. Like, I mean, right. I mean, it might be a in very interesting case study and like improv across these different types of musicians, but it, guaranteed if you instead had them spend time figuring out their sound first, and jamming together um, and finding cohesion than um, even the Beatles. I mean, they were a great band until there was friction with, you know, within the band, they ultimately broke up. Right. So we basically have all sorts of bands. If you think about the enterprise where the band would break up if they were given the option, but instead they're being forced to stay together. And of course they're not like, they're not achieving the results that, that you would want. So that'd be the first thing is like, as a leader, bringing your quote band together. The other part thinking about the, the band analogy is that you don't write an album while you're on tour because you're spending all of your creative energy and all of your emotional energy just to perform well. And so, but organizationally speaking, every day that that you're spending eight hours or you know, even if you spend seven hours a day doing your operational work and then try to allocate an hour to try to, you know, be creative and innovative, it's just it's 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 as much of a logical fallacy as it would be to expect a band to write a great album while also on tour. Um, so we instead have to carve out time that if you really want to do something new and innovative, that's a breakthrough in any way, carve out time outside of quote being on tour um, to really sit with these things and think about them and think about the market and think systemically about all the different conditions, even the emotional culture of your organization. And think about, you know, instead of thinking, well, this person is not going to help us because of X, Y, Z. When someone says that, instead ask the question, well, what would have to be true for that person to be on board with this, right? And 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 working backwards from where you want to be to where you are today, as opposed to, you know, um, starting forward and, and oftentimes pushing pushing on the wrong end of a rope. Yeah, I forget what you call that in the book. It's future casting. Future solving. Future solving, future casting, future solving. Got it. You know, what, what's really interesting about your band analogy, and I believe you have a band analogy in the book too. I think you were talking about, was it uh, Bach, who uh, in the old days, you know, before before we allowed 
uh, for rock, rock band heroes, which I think you said started with Beethoven. But it did start with Beethoven. In the yeah. old days, the box of the world, the composers of the world, would take the instruments they could get from the churchgoers that exactly that were coming, and they would right. put it together. And that, and it, they became prolific composers because they had to. The urgency of the moment and the instruments that were in play, they became very adept at composing different things. So I love that analogy. Um, and yet, you also later say, wait, we're, we're doing this a little wrong, back to future solving for a second, because you you go into the fact that we're, iter because we're systems and mechanistic oriented from the industrial age, we tend to think we're making progress by small iterations. In fact, you'll even have leaders say, we can't accept that degree of change. It would throw us off course. And yep. of course, they wouldn't be saying that if there wasn't a degree of truth in it as well. So you do a good job. I'm using my word. Sorry, Brian. You do a good job of saying, wait just a second. There's a way to secure the core and still allow the white space for productive innovation. Go into that a little bit around that future solving. So problem solving is the craft of getting rid of what you don't want. Yeah. Um, and so, but, but getting rid of what you don't want has no real effect on actually acquiring what it is that you do want. And so if you only problem solve problems, you're destined to make whatever you have slightly better each time. And that it makes sense when you think about the industrial age and we're making machines and using machines to make other things, um, then well, from that mindset, if the whole world is a machine and our organizations are like machines and we're just seeing everything through that lens, well, the way you fix a machine that's broken is you you find out what problem has revealed itself, what if inefficiency, and you you solve the problem, machine works again. And if you want to make the machine work better, you look for inefficiencies, remove those, and and there you go, it works again, you know, even faster. And so it makes sense that we would, through that visual lens and mindset of the whole world, and seeing organizations like large mechanical systems be looking for opportunities to, you know, starting with bottoms up problem solving. Let's create a list of problems. Let's bubble that up and all the way up till we fund the ones that are going to produce the most, you know, return on investment. But one thing that I, I think is a, a strong challenge that I issue to leaders that seems to help navigate into this, I think, a new era of leadership that that we've that has been beset upon us. Like I mentioned in the very beginning, like the context has shifted. The things that worked in the 20th century are not working now. And um, if you look at it, there are companies that were strong leaders in technology at the same point <clears throat> that Microsoft was. Similar size, similar age, similar you know number of experts working for them. And I'm not going to name names. And are, are those the ones that we're hearing about in the news all the time now because they're at the top of the the, the pile? Unfortunately, no. And there's no it's no um, discredit to them as much as to say the difference that we're seeing is is the the, the uh, organizations that are reimagining the way they lead. At, at the time that that Satya came in to um, be the CEO of uh, of Microsoft, he said, "I need a new people strategy, new technology strategy, and a new business strategy." And he set the three at the same time. Um, and so he, so he understood that, that there are three pillars that are required if you're going to lead meaningful change. If you only do a new business strategy, but your tech's the same and your people are the same, it's going to fail, and and vice versa across all those all those levers. Um, and so what I the issue that I challenge to leaders is to 
say that, hey, the way you're making decisions is unscientific. And they say, no, 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 we're being data-driven. We only make data-driven decisions. I say, yeah, that's unscientific too. And, you know, I'm often met with some surprise of some sort, whether it, you know, range from rage to just confusion. Um, and, uh, And what I say is, well, if you think about the scientific method, it begins with asking questions, forming hypotheses, experimenting, analyzing the results, drawing a conclusion. Our process in most organizations today, the data-driven process is ask questions, form hypotheses, analyze the results or gather data from other experiments other people did or past experience experiments you did that were different, analyze results of those, draw the conclusion, which is the investment decision, and then begin the experiment. But instead of calling an experiment, we've already proven in advance how long it should take, what investment it should cost, and we're going to tie people's performance to it. And so you can see fundamentally, if you if you did that in science, we would make no more progress. If you said, before you go embark on this cancer research, you have to prove to me exactly how long it's going to take, how many resources you need, what the return on investment, right? Like we would cease all research in, to try to solve cancer. So if you look at and say, if you apply that back to the business world and say, we're trying to do something new that no one has done before, you cannot prove ROI. And if you're expecting yourself to, that automatically creates a limit to the, the degree of innovation that you can achieve. Yeah, and you you do a, a similar thing, trying to urge especially new technology companies who have kind of been used to trying to prove their case through use cases. And the use cases slip into the me- mechanistic view of the world of iteration instead of whole picture. Because you're, I think you were using farmers as an example of that. If the farmer believes they know the crops just as much as a machine can, you're not going to help them. But if the farmers see themselves as part of a larger ecosystem that you're really trying to feed the world, it becomes a whole different issue. Right. Yeah. If you, if you, well, and there's, there's a cultural element in, in, in the example you gave, both farming, manufacturing, I mean, any, any industry, um, if you look at farmers, not only does that farmer believe that they, they know it better than the machine, um, they also have a, fundamental identity tie to what they do because their families have lived on that land for generations. And so um, to come in and say, without ever asking them what they think or what they think they need and say, hey, we're using satellite imagery and we can detect X, Y, Z about your crops and what you should do. I mean, there's a cultural clash just inherent to that. Whereas um, if you start with the, the question of meeting with farmers and saying, okay, we have all these new tools, just like there were, you know, breakthroughs in tractors and other types of agricultural tools in the past and say the goal of feeding the world, we want to support that with these new tools. Um, What would, you know, and starting with what would help, what would be the thing that would help you do that? Um, And, and bringing them along as a partner with their deep domain expertise, cultural expertise, um, you know, then, then you could actually arrive at something that would not only be useful and, and effective, but that they'll, they will actually use, right? And so I think the fact that technologists look at any space and and say, oh, I could we could do that better with tech. Um, it's it's kind of like um, there's this thing that happened about a hundred years ago, a little over a hundred years ago, called Taylorism, which was in manufacturing. Um, they they would come the tailor and his his you know cohort of experts um, would come from the outside and they would define every, this is the beginning of process mapping and process optimization. They would define every process that was taking place. They'd time it with stopwatches. So they'd effectively be these experts from the outside that would come in and 
before they left, tell you how to do your process better. And um, there were some fundamental flaws with that because, you know, he referred to the people of the laborer of sluggish mind or, you know, things like that, right? So that he had some views on people that were problematic. But um, if you look at, if you fast forward to today and you think about, huh, when we come in with technology and we say, I don't need to talk to your people, just give me access to your data. One, we're, like I mentioned before, the, about starting with expertise instead of starting with data, we're already, we're already missing that, right? But then also too, culturally speaking, even if the thing you create is great from a data perspective, you're basically performing what I, what I have called in the book, data science tailorism. And, and it could be any kind, it doesn't have to just be data science. It could be any, just tech tailorism where we're the experts from the outside. We don't need to talk to any of these people. We'll design something better for you. Um, and I think that's a reason that of the 7% of AI initiatives that are successful, right? Or sorry, of the 13% that are successful, only 7% are still in production two years later. And I think that the, the fundamental reason is because back to the whole thinking systemically, um, if you come in to a group of, you know, frontline workers in a manufacturing and an automotive, you know, plant that's making cars and you say, oh yeah, we use this computer vision thing to detect defects, blah, blah, blah. And now you have to use it this way because it can do it better than you can. Um, if at any point, if the system's not working well or any opportunity they have to prove that they know that, that they know it better, they're going to take that opportunity, right? They're not going to do anything they, they can to support this thing that is effectively being positioned yeah. as in opposition to them, as opposed to if you flip that on its head and say, okay, we're bringing these front people into the frontline people into the first conversation. And we're saying, we have these amazing tools. We have some ideas for ways, but what do you think? And just inviting them into that conversation. Um, not only do you find better actual results and, and things that you can go, you know, go do, um, but then once you achieve those results, then you're much more likely for the cultural change required for it to actually be meaningful to take place uh, because of how you went about it. You know, Brian, uh, but then we're coming full circle because you're you're a man who understands the language he's using has an impact. Words are real things. And we've already kind of boiled the frog with our employees. We've already pitted them against, because of the language we're using, machine learning, artificial intelligence. We've already, by our very language, because you, you talk about three outcomes from this data science Taylorism. One, you know, it pits the machine against us. It impacts the implementation, adds to the failure rate. But, but I, I don't see how you overcome it unless you overcome the language. What are we going to do about the language we're using? Which is why I said, what are we really creating here? An artificial machine, a robot that's going to take my place. What are we really creating here that gives hope to the average employee so that they are willingly collaborating with you on that shared future? I, I think we do need a new lexicon. I 100% agree with you. I think some of the things that I've been saying is, um, you know, that no, I, I've made some pretty declarative statements about this. For example, um, no AI has ever come for anyone's job in, in the history of the world. There's no machine that has walked up to a company, knocked on the door and said, I'd like to have that person's job. If it's it, Instead, it is that leaders who are looking to cut costs 
have looked for tools that they can use to cut costs and ways that they can automate tasks so that they can cut costs by letting laying people off. If you have that same position and instead of it being a leader that wants to cut costs with these tools says, okay, I'm gonna try to increase the top line revenue with these tools and I'm gonna augment the people and so that we can do even more with the same workforce and, and maybe create some new products with these given these new capabilities. Um, the same is the tool is the same in both cases. One is being used to try to cut costs by eliminating jobs. The other is being used to try to raise increase profits um, and inc increase revenue by adding more value with the same number of jobs. Um, and so I think that that's to me the fundamental um, difference that I that I've been pointing folks toward when they're when they're saying, oh, I'm, I'm concerned about these technologies and whether or not it's going to take my job. It, it, where it's easy, it's we're abdicating the blame. We're looking and saying, well, it's the technology taking the job. No, it's the leader that's deciding to use that technology for better, for worse, to try to eliminate jobs. Well, what and so if you're working, look at the leader you're working for. And that, that will answer the question because even if the technology is absolute garbage, if you have a kind of leader who's looking for a way to eliminate jobs, they might still, they might still lay a bunch of people off and realize they actually have to hire them back because okay now we're actually failing um and that's i've i've seen dozens of examples of that yeah you you were so good when you were saying okay and you just did it a few minutes ago here's the scientific method you realize what we did we then created a scientific management based on the machine treating people like machines and i wrote a little note from your book i wrote a little note to myself what brian's really saying i said is we've missed the fact of the infinite opportunity, and I chose that word carefully, the infinite variability and opportunity of a human being to help us innovate. And, and so it's kind of interesting, you did call yourself the good profit company instead of the good revenue company or top line revenue company, but you're, you're absolutely right. There, um, there is a defense mechanism because of the way we built our companies and our economy and our stock market. If Bezos would have listened to his public investors early on, uh, he would have never done the things he did. Uh, he was courageous though. Not many CEOs are courageous like that. And he was in it for the long game, not a two-year, three-year cycle and a bailout. So yes, yeah. we need a new definition of leadership if we are going to um, squeeze the juice out of human, infinite human variability and innovation. How are we going to do that? Well, I've, I've certainly, you know, that's some, that's a problem I'm working on. That's part of why I wrote the book. And, um, and I think that the way that I, the thing that I think every single one of us can do now is to look at wherever we are, we can lead from where you are, even if you're, um, you know, the beginning of your career, or if you're, you know, a, a C-level executive, and and to look at how you're looking at the world, and how you're working with other people, and, and realize that the context has shifted. So even if there are many books from the 20th century that are extremely valuable with management insights, um, but they were written in the context of the 20th century. And a lot of them were written looking at the world as a large mechanical machine and organizations as large mechanical machines. And so what I would say is uh, the first step is to look and say, okay, if my organization is a social system, fundamentally a, a, a collection of humans coming together, just like a band trying to achieve something meaningful together, um, then the the rules of things like, 
you know, um, the sort of command and control style that a lot of people took on in the in the 20th century, that worked great in the 20th century because people, you know, that if this was their only job they've ever had, their livelihood is attached to this and they will obey because they don't have another option. Doesn't work anymore. Now people can go find another job. They can gain new skills overnight, practically online. They can have access to leaders and people from all over the world through LinkedIn, you know, and they can, within a matter of weeks, be in a completely different job in a completely different company, um, maybe working remotely, maybe moving um, in a way that they never could have 30 years ago. And so let alone, you know, 70 years ago. And so the the precepts of management that we have held on to and that have helped people get to the leadership positions they're in now, in a lot of cases, no longer work even already. It's like if you've been painting with a paintbrush, you know, for, for your whole life, and then all of a sudden the paintbrush just stops working and you have to find a new way to paint. That's what organizational leaders are facing today. Um, they, the, the paintbrushes that were working with, with, you know, there's obviously exceptions that were already thinking of their organizations as social systems. And a lot of them are touted leaders that people think, well, that person was just some kind of genius or gifted in some way. And I would argue that that person had the right mindset and they developed the skills that are required to lead people and to lead people to, to achieve their best work together collaboratively. Um, and so if you're looking at, well, how exactly do I, I harness the potential of AI? It's not that you're, you're, you have the wrong experts. In a lot of cases, you know, there's, there's more and more experts gaining these skills every day. So if you, you can have the right experts in the room from the domain expertise perspective, from the data science, the software, all of it, um, and still fail based off of you and, and your leadership. And, um, and, and the same, at the same time, you can have a group of people that are one tier down in their expertise, but with the right leadership, they can all grow and they can overcome, you know, the, 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 whatever lack of expertise they have, because they have a real connection to each other and to what they're doing and why it matters. And I, I would bet on that horse every day over the, over the group of experts that are, um, you know, being, have, have someone breathing down their neck, uh, with tight timelines and, and none of them get along and they're disrespecting each other's expertise. Um, that's, that's just a failed proposition from the start. Love it. Let's conclude with this. Um, a few moments ago, none of you would have seen this. Um, a child walked into Brian Evergreen's office. Um, so I'm going to ask him, how are you going to communicate to your children that what is occurring and unfolding in their world is not something to fear, but to embrace? How are you going to communicate that to them? That's a great question. Um, I think one thing I'll, I'll be doing with them is making sure they're steeped in literature, because, you know, I think we, we learn about so much about the present and even the future based on the past. And so, um, I think that's one thing is is instilling a deep love and understanding of of knowledge and of the sort of vein of human thought that has brought us to where we are today and um that's that's critically important to me and um but I'd say that in terms of what I will specifically tell them is I I'm planning on and it's funny that you asked that because I I have been thinking about that my son's just a little bit too young to grasp some of those concepts um he's only 5 but um I've been thinking about that. And I think what I plan on sharing with them is that there are all these amazing ways that we as people have invented uh, to do things. We Things that a long time ago, 
uh, were not possible. The, the life expectancy, you know, a hundred years ago was 40, or a little over a hundred years ago, um, was 48 years old was the average life expectancy. And people couldn't go visit other cultures um, overnight the way they can now. And uh, let alone, you know, do road trips even just a hundred years ago the way they can now. And, um, you know, there's so many diseases that we've cured and, and on and on and on. So as amazing people throughout history have been creating new ways of living and addressing and, and making it so that our lives are better and better. They've also invented things that um, can either be used for harm intentionally or that unintentionally harm us and um, us and our world and our planet. And so every single person has to decide and you, you know, children in this case have to decide um, when we look at these technologies, they are, um, they are just the same way that we look at our, at animals in the world, right? You, you can have an adverse relationship with animals, but if you understand them, you can, you can find ways as humans to make sure your habitat, you know, the, the habitats that they're in and where you are and that you're, you're safe from, um, from, you know, the, any kinds of threats or risks from them. Um, and I think it's similar with machines where we, we get, we can have a relation, we can coexist with, and I even exist is the wrong word because machines don't exist the way that we exist as humans. So I'd say that, um, we don't need to be afraid that they are tools for us to use and, um, the choices that we make, um, in how we use them, how much time we spend on them, um, will make all the difference in our ability to have community. I think, I think it, I break it down a little bit sometimes um, with my family, at least in practice to rituals. Um, I think that what, what it means to be human in a lot of cases can break down to rituals. Do you have dinner as a family with screens off looking at each other and, and talking about your day? Um, or have we eliminated that ritual in many families I've heard of where, you know, it just kind of goes from, let's just, you know, eat while we work or eat while we watch a movie and, um, and, and we're entertaining ourselves to death. If you're familiar with that book, um, in some, in some ways. And so, um, so I think that looking at and preserving at all costs, whatever rituals make us feel most alive, most human and most connected will be critically important. And that if we look at jobs that, um, you know, work will always, I think as long as, uh, as long as we're alive, as long as society, humans are, are a species, there will be work to do. And, um, and so I think that it will just evolve how, what, what work we do and how we do it will always be evolving, just like it's evolved so much in the last 30 years and the 30 years before that. Um, and so the outlook I would say is very, very promising, uh, for anyone who, especially who is, the more human traits that you develop in terms of talking with and collaborating with and leading um, humans, the better, uh, in, especially in this era. So it's a, a long-winded answer to your question, but um, you know, I, it's something I care deeply about. So, well, we—it's so funny because we talked about the silos of excellence, and of course, pointing to the domains: you're in finance, you're in HR, you're in technology, you're in supply chain and how those interlock in phenomenal and compelling ways um, and of course are broken by not having them interlocked in compelling and profound ways uh, but there's another silo there's another silo that ends up be becoming a program 
or even a value system on a wall, an express value system on a wall, and that is leadership development, leadership and cultural development. It's a silo of excellence. It isn't intertwined in the moments that matter inside a company, right? And what you're doing, what you just said to me, is you're trying to take the same things you're practicing professionally and instilling them in your children. That there's there's an EQ to the family, to the individual, and a whole company yet to be realized. And that's the promise of the profitable good company. Brian Evergreen, this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much. I've, I've enjoyed it, Ron. Thank you.